Welcome to this episode of Beaver Pod with Brad Hill. Hello and welcome back to this podcast, Life in Equine Practice, What Makes Us Tick. I'm your host, Brad Hill, and I'm just going to recap the idea behind this podcast. So really, it's an opportunity to chat to members of the equine profession and talk about their challenges and their careers and how they've managed to get to where they are now. We will touch also on their failures, which I think is a really um, important part of the podcast. And I hope that's really an opportunity for our guests to think about how they've used um, perhaps a little bit of self-compassion to reflect on those failures and actually see them as an opportunity to learn and perhaps propel their careers uh, in a more focused direction. So I I really believe in the idea of, of learning to fail forward. So moving on to our guest for today, I'm really, really proud to welcome Graham Duncanson. Graham is a retired large animal vet. He is, in his own words, um, perhaps one of the longest standing beaver members. He was in clinical practice for over 50 years. He has uh, been a partner in his own practice uh, in Norfolk. He stepped out of the partnership and and actually returned as an assistant. So he has an idea of what it's like to be um, perhaps in the coalface, running the practice and also as part of the team as an assistant. In addition to that, he's a novelist and author. He's written many blogs and articles for In Practice. He's done charity events, cycling from London to Cape Town in 2017, which is absolutely extraordinary. He has a vested interest in equine dentistry, and and that's where I um, really came across Graham way back when I graduated and went down to the uh, racing school at Newmarket. And he was part of the CPD event down there for new graduates. And I must say, he really made me feel um, uh, empowered that, that that it was okay to make mistakes as I was rasping a set of teeth and there was blood pouring out of the horse's mouth. And he just gave, him, gave me that knowing look of, it's okay, um, that's absolutely fine. And, and, it, and it was a, a real sort of comfort blanket in that moment of thinking, oh gosh, what have I done? He's also a fellow uh, of the RCVS, and again, that's linked to his um, equine dentistry. And uh, although he's retired, he still has an active role in in many different areas. And his daughter um, continues to to practice in the vet profession. So he's clearly passed on um, uh, those genes. So welcome, Graham. How how are you today? Yeah, I'm extremely well. Um, And I feel guilty, really, because... You know, lockdown as a retired person hasn't affected me greatly. And I I feel so sorry for school kids and particularly university students where lockdown is a, is a, is a real disaster. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's certainly, um, I know with my teaching, it's been, um, it seems to really affected that, that uh, generation of um uh, of our society. So, so Graham, where where are you um, today? Are you uh, settled at home in front of the computer? Yeah, that's right. So I'm looking out the window. It is actually raining and I'm in Norfolk, which is a marvellous place. And we normally are drier than the rest of the world. Well, I don't say west of the world because of deserts, but we're drier than many parts of the UK. But today isn't one of those days. And I think we're in for more rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's frustrating because you think spring's around the corner and and then it, it starts raining again. Um, Graham, I want to kick off with um, talking about your career. So, can we go uh, back to the right back to the beginning? Where where did it start? Where did you graduate from, and and how did you take that first step into the big wide world of of being a practicing vet? Yes, well, I'm often teased about not being a proper vet because 
Um, I graduated from Bristol in 1966, and actually ours was only a four-year course, which was pretty unusual. I don't think they continued very long with a four-year course. But what is marvellous about my group who graduated in 1966, and there were 30 of us, we have all kept in touch and sadly obviously some have died but um, we try and meet as we've got older more regularly Um, but initially I graduated and did a couple of locums um, which sadly modern vets can't really do. Locum agencies don't tend to recruit new graduates, but I learned a lot from these locums. They were only two months long, each of them, but I learned that the relationship between a locum and his employer and between a locum and the clients is very different from a new assistant. And um, it is actually much easier because people might not like you or might not want you to treat their animals, but they tend to sort of look at you and say, well, he's only here for a couple of months. We'll put up with him. And then Mr. Smith will be back and all be well. So um, that was a learning curve. And then I set off to um, Kenya and spent eight years there. And that was one of the most uh, marvelous times in my life. And many of my close friends, mainly veterinary, but other close friends I made during those eight years. And then I returned, and perhaps um, from then on, I became a a UK-based practitioner. Yeah, Um, Graham, I I just want to pick up on um, a couple of points that you you made at the beginning. I mean, to think of only 30 in your year is... um, I mean, something that I, I, I just can't relate to. I mean, I think there was over 200 in my year and I graduated in um, 2008. Um, and I remember there were only 20 guys in my year. How, how What was the gender split in your group of 30? Because I just think it'd be quite nice to share that because it already there's such a difference there, isn't there, in the, in, in the cohorts in terms of numbers? Yes, we actually were very lucky, and there were five girls of the of the of the nineteen. Um, but that was unusual in those times. The following, the previous year, there'd only been one girl, and the following year, there's only two. I I don't. I think slowly they increased from then on, but. Um, We were lucky. So nearly a quarter um, were were female, which was very unusual. So it was predominantly a male-dominated degree then at at that stage? Yes, it, it was. I mean, the disadvantage of being such a small year was that we couldn't, for instance, raise a rugby team or anything like that. We did have a soccer team, but the benefits for learning were were marvellous. And it was a very hands-on course. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you've talked about the benefits there of, of creating that um, unity. And, and obviously, that's continued... Um, up to now where where you're still in touch with that that um year group so yeah it's a a very different look sounds like a very different experience to to perhaps what i went through and um and what what the students go through and i'm sure there's there's pros and cons um to both this the second point you you made was about the low coming and actually that sort of um, triggered me and my thoughts because i i did the same i i I locumed a bit as a new graduate um and i 
I, I have fairly fond memories of it as well. And I think it's something that we perhaps would discourage now um, from any new graduate doing it would almost seem as seem see as the, the kind of the last thing you would advise. But but I actually quite enjoyed my locoming and, and for some of those points that, that you said as a new graduate. So interesting that you raised that. Yes, I mean, I, um, well, I, I, I don't want to, well, I think I can, being a, a beaver podcast. There was a beaver initiative a year ago called the Leg Up Scheme, which uh, beaver paid for 20 of us to be trained as coaches and mentors. And we each um, were encouraged to take on one new or recent graduate to to mentor and I found that actually very useful for myself and hopefully the um, the 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 young vets that I was giving a leg up to benefited as well yeah, I, I, I'm glad you've touched on that because I do know about that scheme and and, and I know it, it has been successful and I love the idea of giving anyone um, a leg up, uh, certainly a, a role model. Um, what, what do you think, I mean, we we can sort of perhaps come back to this, but what, what do you think are the ultimate sort of benefits to that, to that scheme and for that new graduate? So what would you say would be the things that, that have really worked well? Yes, I think it, it's so easy as a, a young person, there's so much going on in one's life. If things get on top of you, you tend to spiral downwards. And this is where I think um, a coach or a mentor, or we didn't know them as such then, but somebody who would look after you when you first went into practice, um, was such a marvellous benefit. And of course, I was lucky because when I, uh, I returned to the United Kingdom in 1974, I needed a job and I went, you'd hardly believe this, I had 19 different interviews before I got the right job. And that wasn't obviously lots of people didn't want me but I was pretty choosy and I think new graduates should be choosy um, because that first job is very important I don't know what you feel Brad about that yeah I, I, I agree I think that that first job although you perhaps don't see it at the time can really shape your um your whole uh, pathway and, and maybe kind of, you know, gives you or can kind of build your confidence or quite quickly uh, take it away. So, yeah, I would definitely echo that. I, I want to know about, about Kenya a little bit because it, 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 it sounds incredible. Did you say you were there for, for eight years and then you sort of came back and, and were choosy about your next career choice? So, so what did you do in Kenya and, and how did that set you up for making that decision about your fit for practice or the practice that would work for you when you came back yes well i once again i was lucky um because as i said earlier it was only a four-year course in bristol so i was only 22 when i qualified and i arrived in kenya in 66 and the kenyan graduates only started coming out of nairobi um university in 1968, so that I had two years seniority on my peers, so to speak, and managed to get very rapid um, promotion. And because I was a bachelor, I was moved a lot and didn't mind living in a tent for weeks on end. I learned to fly, which meant that I was useful in disease outbreaks in the far north of Kenya. I mean, you wouldn't credit it, but there's over a million camels in 
Kenya. So I took an interest in them, and that's why I'm still very interested in camelids to this day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, that's another common interest, because I I actually did quite a lot of camelid work um, when I was in in practice. I think it's an interesting area to diversify into. Um, your your Kenyan experience, um, Graham. Well, what was it about that then, which which focused your um, decision making when you were going through those nineteen job applications or or processes? So so what what did you know then when you came back to the UK, having been in Kenya? What 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 you know? Where were your thoughts at that stage? Yes, I I, I must say this is I'm replying to that question totally sort of unrehearsed, but. I think after eight years, I knew that I wanted to work for myself. I only had to look at, I think I went to two practices with a view to buying the practice from a a single practitioner. And one look at these poor men who were absolutely worn out by working 24-7 convince me that I I needed to work with others. And then I also, it, it, it sounds perhaps a bit strange, but I thought I don't want to work for people who are younger than me. And so I was looking for very experienced practitioners and the three who who owned the practice at North Walsham were much older than me. They were kind and they were very, very experienced and were, in fact, a good mix of of tutors. Wow. So did you step into a partnership then at at that stage as a large animal vet? No, I, 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 it was agreed before I started work that I would get a partnership in three years or earlier. So I did three years as a, an assistant before I took Mr. Dawson's partnership. Um, and they were a very far-thinking group of men in that... They'd managed to um, nullify, to some extent, this dreadful thing called goodwill. And this, I think, is, a, is something that the profession needs to, um, needs to tackle because, um, you know, young people who are buying into partnerships just can't afford to buy goodwill, which is a non-tangible asset and uh, I'm sure this is why the the practice uh, ethos has changed with all the corporates. Yes gosh we're getting into an area that I'm thinking gosh can I keep up with this because I think it's such an interesting um, debate this this sort of partnership um, decision and like you said this idea of um, you know goodwill and uh, and 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 perhaps you know some of the reasons why um, you know there's been this increase in um, in corporates and, and this bit of a takeover. But but Graham, just to sort of crystallise that that decision. So you you clearly wanted to have a partnership um, proposition. So you looked for a job that that you knew would that would be something on the cards. You you wanted to work with a a, a group of uh, em, employers that were older than you, and and obviously then you could learn experience from. Um, did you have a, a location that you wanted to be? Did you did you did you know that you wanted to be in a certain part of the UK? Was that a criteria? No, that wasn't. I, uh, which is an advantage. And uh, in reflection of all the young people who've who've worked with me as as, as students and young assistants, the only ones who've had problems finding employment have been when they've been tied to a location and so the fact that I was happy to to go anywhere 
broadened the search marvelously, really. Yeah, and I think that you know we, we, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I think we have this sort of dilemma. I certainly did when I graduated. Of you know, do you do you make your career fit around your personal life, and your personal life might be moving to to where your other half is, or do you think, well, we're going to make it work even if we're in different countries um because our careers are important at this stage and we need to establish them uh, you know I, I think that's a difficult crossroads and i certainly see that with our new graduates at nottingham is they're thinking do i compromise my career to to live with my other half yes and of course this is 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 very much how i feel sorry for um the female graduates and i i, I really throw all my weight behind them because it is the girls in these relationships who who, who often have to sacrifice their careers for for um, their partners and um, yeah I, I we we need to change we need to look at ourselves as veterinary surgeons and realize that we are now a female profession and we must give you know every every girl a right if she wants it to um, to have have children yeah and and i know that this is one of your um big passions graham having touched base with you before this podcast is that you really feel that um you know at times as a as a as a as a profession or as an equine profession, we've we've perhaps done um, a, a disservice to 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 women who who have been vets and had to take maternity leave and then perhaps come back and felt at a disadvantage and and maybe their careers have have taken a backward step when when really you know as you said that that's not right. I mean, how can we support um, those those females that are listening to this, thinking, well, you know. That's exactly how I feel, you know. I, I I'm worried about returning back to my job and and feeling disadvantaged. How can we improve that? Well, I think, yeah, I'd probably like to sort of tell a little story because um, a pre-university student, so she was 15 years old, uh, a, a girl came with me to see she was determined to be a vet and to see what practice was like and um uh, on the the first day it was a bitterly cold windswept day and she was frozen solid you know she we were doing a tb test and um, uh, she was just writing down the numbers so she wasn't active and she was freezing and i thought to myself oh she'll never be back on the, the the third day to read the test but she turned up and later that day we did some dehorning well not it was of sort of um, 12 week old calves that needed sort of more than disbudding you needed to cut out the horn bud before using the hot iron and I had a gadget which was produced in Denmark, a sort of gouging thing. And there was a lot of blood and everything. And I did the first two. And I handed the gadget to Angela. And um, the farmer said, oh, you can't yet a, a young girl do a job like that. And she turned to him and said, a strong woman is a lot better than a weak man. And that summed wow. up what I feel about the female profession. Yeah, and I think that, that picks up, you know, Graham, on this idea of equality. And, you know, I sit um, on an EDI committee at Nottingham and, you know, as well as thinking about equality um, across the you know, genders, uh, you know, female, male, and, and making sure that we are all treated the same. I, I certainly think that, you know, in my situation, um, if I wanted to go away and, and have children, um, 
you know, being in a in a same sex couple. I mean, I've had to look at things like adoption leave. I mean, you know, could I go to my practice if you were a partner and say, Graham, my partner and I, you know, we're we're going to try to to adopt. And does your practice offer adoption leave? I mean, you know, what would be the response to that? Yes, and that that should be, you know, uh, certainly should be available. And I mean, I can give you uh, an idea. When I was helping in the southeast to set up um, a sort of um, group of individual female practices, and we were setting up. Um, these were large animal practices, but um, uh, it would apply to equine as well. And because of the enormous cost of housing, we really needed the, um, the, 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 the girl who was wanting to set up to have a, um, a partner or husband who was a big earner who could afford the the um the housing and one couple who were a, a single sex couple fitted the bill you know one one man was a a top person in the city and his 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 partner was was a veterinary surgeon and so they could work together and i don't think they wanted children but it could have easily been worked in yeah well i'm glad you say that because actually you know if i'm really honest you know having started at, at, in the university i know that something like that is very easily accept you know accessible and you only have to look on the university website and there you go adoption leave all set out for you very similar to maternity or or paternity leave but i think we could sort of debate whether the equine profession you know lags behind or whether the vet profession does um a, a, a lot about that but I, I want to return to your sort of role as a, a partner in 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 your practice um and then your interest in equine dentistry where, where did that start and and you know how did you get and get to the point where you were involved with cpd events because because that's where i as i've said in my intro really came across you and and your um your warmth and, and, and caring sort of approach to, to young vets. So how did you get into equine dentistry? Yes, that, that it, it, I, I think, and he's retiring this year. Um, my guide and mentor was Paddy Dixon from Edinburgh, and I heard him speak in the early 80s about, let's call it modern equine dentistry. And um, I had been trained to do dentistry on horses, but it was very um, old-fashioned and the wraths were bad, the gag was was dangerous and so on. And when I heard this lecture from Paddy, uh, um, I thought, this is a job for me. Um, I never was an a small animal surgeon. I never was neat with my hands and couldn't stitch up like my daughter can beautifully. I was hopeless. And um, But dentistry, because I'm partly ambidextrous, was something that I could, you know, um, could felt that I could do. And actually, it brings me on to one of the things that we, I think, was in your sort of preliminary approach to me was what sort of advice would you give on sort of top tips for mental well-being? And I think it's one of those tips that I would say to people is to do simple things well so and take pride in it and um, doing dentistry hopefully I did it well and I certainly took pride in it yeah yeah and I, I think you know that's a that's a great point it's those sort of easy wins that um 
that we get and i think dentistry actually is a is is one of those routine procedures where you can make a big difference in a relatively short um space of time within you know 10-15 minutes if you've got your equipment up to scratch and and you can you can feel satisfied that you've um you've made a big difference to that to that horse so i i agree i think it it can be a rewarding um area to get your sort of i was going to say teeth stuck into which is a bit of a pun but but yeah no i i totally agree with that um i i then went from that cpd and out into ambulatory practice and i i I spent, you know, majority of my clinical years in ambulatory practice, and I absolutely loved it. And 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 it's interesting because when we spoke um, before the podcast, you slightly touched a nerve with with me because I've always felt that you know the experience I've generated as an ambulatory vet when I now step back into academia and I'm part of a a team of you know highly specialised um, equine clinicians with with multiple qualifications. And there's me with my bank of ambulatory experience, I suddenly don't feel, you know, I get that imposter syndrome of not feeling quite, you know, like I'm, I don't know, as I'm not a specialist, I get that feeling of my experience doesn't, you know, stack up to theirs. So, and I know that you, you feel quite different to that, Graham, you, you feel that actually an ambulatory vet is a specialist in their own right. Yes, yeah, I, I I feel about that passionately, and um, I um, yeah, I, I with a group of, of seven others was commissioned by the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons to um, update um, the certificates in practice issued by the college. Um, in the early years of this century. And um, so, yeah, I feel that ambulatory or primary care or whatever you like to call it is is a specialist subject in its own right. And now you can do all manner of, um, of um, courses on leadership, communication skills, and so on. Yeah, and, and actually, Graham, you can do an ambulatory internship now, which um, I, I only got to learn about the last six months. So, so I think that you know the profession is moving forward and is recognising um, the the importance and 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 the fact that you know it, it is a, a specialism in its own right. So, um, there are steps forward in in that. Um, Graham, as a as a partner in a, in a practice, I, I mean, I, I got a feeling from you when I met you that you know you were very supportive, you were very kind, you were very sort of generous in your time. I mean, you know, what do you think you did well as a partner? You know, leading a team of of of, of vets of of varying levels of experience. I mean, how did you sort of provide that that support that I'm sure lots of um, vets struggle to find the time to support a new graduate I mean how, how did you do that and then how did you also manage to sort of maintain your own enthusiasm for the for the job which which you know took you to 50 years in clinical practice so there's sort of two questions there yes I, it's it's very difficult to to answer them um I think I, perhaps my mantra was that I always hoped that I could treat other professionals as I wanted to be treated myself. So if I was ever asked for um, help or my opinion or whatever, I hoped that I was very ready to assist younger colleagues and... um, didn't, you know, say, I'm off duty and put the phone down. Um, But of course, that does, yeah, I mean, it imposes a lot on your life. Um, But if if I hadn't thought that uh, life as a veterinary surgeon wasn't a good one, I would never have encouraged my daughter. No way. And what was interesting was when I was young, I was a farmer's son and my father, um, 
I was the younger son and uh, I he wanted me to be a farmer but um, he tried to dissuade me from being a veterinary surgeon because he said they're crooks, cranks or conscientious objectors which isn't a very pretty derogatory thing to say but once he saw that I wanted to be a vet and was determined to be a vet he gave me a lot of support and that was helpful for a model of how I could support others. Yeah. Wow, that that's incredible. And, and actually, you know, sort of sharing a story with you, you the more I've spoken to you, Graham, the more you've reminded me of, a, of an incredible boss I had. Um, and I will name him Steve Borsbury at... Um, a practice that I worked at and um and he was just so supportive and I mean I remember going out and doing my first carving and feeling very nervous about it and and he spoke to me beforehand while I was on the way and and I, I carved this cow and it, it you know I, I felt you know it was not the most difficult carving but I, I had to get the ratchet out and you know know how to use it and often that can be a lay-by job on the way but I managed to carve this cow and the calf was alive the cow looked fine and just as I was you know clearing up Steve arrived um and he just he just wanted to be there just to say how you doing great well done and and even when I was hosting client evenings I would be setting up at the yard you know a wound workshop and Steve would be sat in his Land Rover and he wouldn't be help setting up but he would just be there and I mean it was an incredible like um feeling of support um that he was prepared to sit in his Land Rover on a cold winter's night and while I was busy setting up the workshop just just to show me that his presence was there. I mean, it was extraordinary when I look back. Yes, I actually do know him. So, yeah, I can, I can see him, him doing that role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just sort of picking up before we get on to talk about your failures, how did you maintain your... Um, enthusiasm do you think for the for 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 the job really I mean how how did you manage to get go 50 years and you know we see a lot of vets now and we, we, we don't need to debate it you know perhaps stepping out of clinical practice I know that I've done that um how did you manage to 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 go on and and and, and keep that flame alight yes that that that's a good question um I think it was that I diversified, so um, that helped in that I um, um, became a sort of teacher, um, like when we met. Um, I also could travel, which is one of my passions, so I ran dentistry courses in South Africa, um, Namibia, um, Swaziland, um, all over the place. Um, I used to go every year to Cyprus on a voluntary basis to do um, the teeth in the donkey sanctuary. So, yes, um, a diversification. I think latterly having a daughter coming into the profession was a big, big draw. Um, and the fact that she worked with me and sort of remembered the things that um, I had talked about, um, that also meant a lot to me. Yeah, yeah. Great. I, I mean, there's just so much that we could pick up on. Um, but I, I, I want to move on to talk about your um, your failures. Um, do you do you want to kick off with your first one? What 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 would you see as perhaps you know your first failure in your in your time as a as a clinician or as a vet? Um, yes, I, I obviously sort of in a, on a time scale. So this occurred out in Kenya. And um, it's difficult to imagine now, but um, what I was, uh, was my first rig op. And this was a polo pony, um, two-year-old um, 
well handled and um, with only one descended testicle. And um, anesthesia was was tricky. Um, what we I was using was chloral hydrate ran it run in, which is you need quite a big volume, run in with a, 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 a flutter valve until the uh, uh, I mean I call them a pony pony a pony, but in fact it's a horse. I mean polo pony is a, a, a fifteen hands or more. Um, and you run this anesthetic in until the thing is staggering. It staggered and knocked my glasses off and then trod on them. And that was the first learning curve was financially the whole operation was down the drain. And that I reflected on that many times in my um, in, in my life. And then finding the testicle was a, was a nightmare. So the thing was staggering about, and then I gave it a bolus of thiopentone, uh, one gram, and then it crashed down, and we cleaned up, and I um, then guttled around in the inguinal ring and found, first of all, a lymph node, and then at last the testicle. I knew that the testicle would feel different than the other one. I knew it would be small. I knew it would be flabby, but of course I had no ultrasound. And um, yeah, locating that was tricky. And um, I eventually got it. And um, so the, the operation wasn't a failure, but financially it was. Right. Okay. And, and was it financially a failure because of how much drugs you'd had to sort of pour into this horse, or, or just just sort of clarify? No, that for it me. was financially uh, the smashing of the glasses. Right. Um, that was the problem. <laughs> you know, glasses in in uh, Africa in nineteen sixty seven were were at a premium. You know. Wow, I guess I'd, I'd missed that point then, Graham. Sorry, I, I, I didn't realise that. So, you know, actually replacing the glasses for you was was a, was a huge sort of problem in it, in its, in itself. I mean, I've just had this smile on my face while you've been telling this story because the imagery of it, I mean, it, 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 it's a great story. I mean, at the moment you mentioned a rig up in sort of under field anaesthesia conditions, um, I just thought, oh my God, this sounds like it could be a an absolute disaster. But it sounds like it, you know it, it 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 turned out in the end to be okay. I mean, you know, what what did you take from that experience? I mean, it obviously is still you know very present in your mind because you managed to recount it in quite a lot of detail. So, what what do you think you learned from that? I, yes, I think what I learned from that one of the other main things I learned was recording things. So it it became apparent to me that if I was going to learn anything and if I was going to benefit others, I needed to record things. And so I recorded throughout my career all the um, castrations in horses that I carried out. And this numbers, you would hardly believe it, um, over 4,000. So there's a lot of big data there. And I can reassure a young graduate going out to, to castrate a cult for the first time that, you know, the, the, the failures, I did have one where the, the horse died through exsanguination and another that um, died from the smaller bowel coming down through the inguinal ring. Um, but only those two were real disasters. Um, and out of 4,000, that isn't bad. Yeah, I, I love I love that idea of keeping a clinical 
diary and, and I think we we did I have touched on this with a with a previous guest and it's not something I did but I actually think it's a great idea because it allows you to document you know you know all your clinical outcomes and and then you've got this bank to reflect back on and actually then you can say well do you know what out of 4,000 you know only a handful of those you know statistically didn't um didn't actually do well which is is a is a negligible amount so it's a it's a great tool to to do and I, I I think if I was in clinical practice I would would probably you know start doing that keeping that 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 diary of the, your clinical experiences so thanks for sharing that yes and while we're on the subject of diaries um I think it's also useful to keep two other diaries. I mean, this seems like an awful lot of work, but it doesn't need to be. Um, one is what I would call an emergency diary when something goes catastrophically wrong. Um, and this may not be a clinical thing. This may be when, you know, uh, uh, I, I tell a story that happened over 50 years ago, but in the uh, in a practice in in Berkshire where it was a three man practice and the youngest um, um, vet came in on having had the weekend off to find that his senior partner had died of a heart attack and his other partner had been killed in a road accident and he was totally on his own. Um, so you know that is the accident diary and then the other diary which is going to be mandatory now with with the royal college is is this cpd diary so not only have we got to record our cpd but we'll have to um record what we have benefited from it rather than just going to a lecture and having a few beers we need to reflect on what we've learned and this is really a good way forward i think yeah that that reflective diary i know that we teach that at, at the uh, at the university to the to the um, to all the years and they start that from from year one so yeah that's an interesting point can we move on to your second failure um graham Yes, I'm just looking down on my list. Oh, yes, it's, yeah, um, it was very early um, after I returned to the, the United Kingdom. So we're talking about 1975, and I was um, called out to a little pony, um, which was in distress, and it had a... Uh, a nasal green bilateral nasal discharge and i looked at this and it's i i was very inexperienced and i didn't know what i was dealing with but i i did something which is pretty fatal really it's a silly thing to do i jumped to a conclusion and I started um, waxing eloquent about grass sickness and how it was a very serious disease and this pony was having a job swallowing and, you know, it was very serious and it was very sick and we were going to, the prognosis was poor and da-da-da. And then I went to my car to get some buscapan that I would decided to inject this poor pony with and on my way to the car I saw a mound of grass mowings and I realized what an error I'd made this wasn't grass sickness at all the animal was choked on grass mowings and um, of course that was very soon resolved and the pony not only was it was just a different pony it was a hundred percent better in two minutes and i'd been saying how serious the condition was and everything and um, 
I don't know whether they twigged on that really my injection of buscapan had absolutely no effect and it was just my misdiagnosis. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you, you shared that because I certainly think that, you know, when I look back to my first number of years in clinical practice, I misdiagnosed several things. I mean, I remember seeing a horse out of hours that was non-weight bearing. I'm sure it had pus in the foot. I picked up the foot to, to and I, I don't even know if I put hoof testers on, but for some reason I felt that the tendons were pretty lax. I mean, do not ask me why I thought that. Um, and I stuck a big Robert Jones on it and uh, uh, some splints and I sent it to the to the local referral hospital. And I'm sure when it arrived, they took the massive bandage off on the splints and dug out the foot abscess. So, you know, I think we've all misdiagnosed and um, and we've certainly painted bleaker pictures. And then actually it's been the, the common thing. I mean, what's the take home message from that, do you think, Graham? Yes, I think actually the take home message is for the guy that you referred it to, um, because they have got to um, support you. And um, what we used to call it in the practice is we big each other up so that when you, um, uh, you know, Mrs. Ponsonby's Mythe or whatever is, is, remonstrating about how a younger member of the practice hasn't done the correct thing for her horse or whatever. It is vital that other members of the practice say, you know, really, um, uh, Mr. Smith is is a very good veterinary surgeon. He is very skilled and you can always big up your... Um, your colleagues, and this makes a big difference, not only within the practice, but big up other professionals. So, you know, if a horse is referred to me with a tooth problem, you know, it's vital that I say how well the practitioners, the frontline practitioners done in referring this animal yeah and I, I i totally agree with that graham i think that you know we there is you know there should be solidarity as a team that everyone should be tight-knit and then wider than that there should be solidarity within the equine profession now sadly i, I have worked in 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 practices where that there is a lot of competitiveness between assistants and some of that's been driven by turnovers and, and i've worked in practices where you've been rewarded by meeting your turnover um, and I think in the equine profession, sometimes uh, with lots of different practices and competitiveness in, in in areas, you know, so you might have four equine practices in a in two counties, then that solidarity is lost because there's a there's this element of competition. So how do we balance that? And and you know, it's all right to say, oh, it's all for one and one for all, but when you're running a business, or you're encouraging your assistants to do to 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 work harder how how do you prevent that competition yes that that is a very good good point i think i would say that the difficulty is that if we are with this competitiveness if we are trying to promote ourselves we are doing ourselves a disfavor because if you come across as the most marvelous veterinary surgeon then the clients will want you and then they will only want you not just any veterinary surgeon they'll want graham and then you get this r ridiculous business of um you know, you hear in so many practices, the poor receptionist saying, oh, Graham, I uh, misses somebody would only see you. So I fitted you in her visit in for your round, which is in the totally wrong direction at 
five o'clock or something and you think, oh, blast, you know, I'm going to be working till all hours. And so I think it's it's to try and um, promote the others in the practice and, for instance, using the equine dentistry as a model, um, it's vital that all the practice are carrying out good equine dentistry, routine equine dentistry. They're recording um, dental charts, they're discussing with the owners, they're booking revisits, and this is all everybody, so that you can you can immediately see the dental chart and follow on what your predecessor has done or said or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point. I, 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 I'm sort of thinking in my head that, you know, you want everyone to sort of work towards a common goal um, and, and certainly work to a certain clinical standard and, and back each other up. But, um, but at the same time, you don't really want to micromanage people so that they feel that they that it's kind of only your way. I mean, it, it it's a debate we could we could have for, for a while. But but I do want to come to your third failure, Graham. Have you have you have you got a third? Failure? Yes, I I have. It's a single word on my piece of paper, hip, and what it brings to mind is a problem which. I'd never seen before and occurred relatively recently. Um, I think my daughter was a student at the time and she was in the practice and she's now been qualified for five years. So it must be six years ago or so. Um, and the pony acute hind leg lameness with real pain when you touched the um, area below the the left hip. If you pushed in there, it was acutely painful for the little pony. And I didn't know what the hell I was dealing with. And I rang, I'm pretty certain, the new market practice and got a got one of my pals there and um, um, they guided me that we were dealing with a displaced hip and I only recently read of a successful bit of surgery replacing um, a replaced hip in a, in a pony um, but we I recruited the small animal um, orthopedic surgeon in the practice to help me my daughter and I anesthetized this pony and he managed to replace the hip and we were having a cup of coffee congratulating ourselves and the pony recovered from the anesthesia and jumped up and immediately we saw it then re- um, um, dislocated the hip and we had to put the thing to sleep but in hindsight and reflection it should have been put to sleep or we should have opted for um, surgery properly opening the um, the, the joint and replacing that the, the joint in that manner yeah and, and I mean it's refreshing Graham to, for you to talk about this case which was you know within the last i think you said sort of 5 years and and bearing in mind at this stage you know you've got over 40 years experience or more um and yet you know it's it's great to hear you say you know i didn't know what was wrong with it i had to ring for some advice and we we had a bit of a, a powwow and then had a collaborative approach etc um i mean that that's refreshing and 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 i think that you know that's great that you've shared that um head scratching moment but you know what what did you sort of learn from that because i mean you know with someone with your experience i mean i'm just sort of thinking you know what 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 did you take from it yes that's uh, yeah it's uh, several things i think uh, i would uh, answer that i mean the main thing i think is that one needs to have a good relationship with your referral people 
um, and a good relationship to your teachers. Um, I mean, that brings me back to Paddy Dixon. Um, you know, I, uh, he, uh, historically, 50, 70 years ago, um, veterinary surgeons were removing cheek teeth in horses per os. And then we, I was taught at university to punch them out um, from above or below, which is a dreadful procedure. And then Paddy got us um, taking them out per os yet again. And um, I, I chatted to him and then I got a case and I was sedated this horse and I'd got my molar spreaders in and then, and then I'd got my molar extractors onto the tooth and it just didn't seem to be shifting at all and I panicked and rang up Edinburgh and got hold of Paddy and he calmly said well how long have you been wiggling the tooth Paddy and I, I'm Graham and I said oh Paddy I've been at it for half an hour and he said oh that's fine you just keep going for another couple of hours and if you haven't got it out give me a ring and um, of course he was right it, it, it's uh, when you're taking out a cheek tooth from a young horse it just you just have to take time um, so yeah. that was the learning yeah, and what what about the just coming back to the the, the hip case? I mean, what, what you know? Do you, do you think then that you you perhaps you know should have recognised that it was a case that perhaps needed to be you know referred? I mean, I'm just trying to sort of think what you would do differently with that case, or do you think it was just you know? And we've discussed on this podcast a lot now about you know we can't control everything, and maybe it was just one of those cases where you couldn't control everything, and that's that's what you've learned from it is yet again that veterinary practice um you know occasionally things just don't go right i mean was that the lesson really from that again that that you can't control everything yes i think you're absolutely right you've hit the nail on the head and that we need to advance so that it would if now only you know uh, 5 years later um both if I had another case or Newmarket had another case, they would, I'm sure, um, have an idea of doing open surgery to reduce it um, um, and anchoring the, the joint rather than trying to replace it without opening, opening the joint. Um, and sadly, I think we, in first opinion practice, we would have a discussion with the owner and it would be pretty likely that the pony in question would not, it wouldn't be a financial consideration. And therefore, from a welfare point of view, um, euthanasia would be the option and would be considerably kinder than anesthesia for a couple of hours faffing around, allowing recovery and then, then euthanasia. So to make the decision earlier. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, you know, I, I love the fact that you've... Um, talked about the idea that you know we're constantly evolving we're bettering ourselves we're learning and it's so exciting when you think about the profession and you think about the the pace that things are changing and and the new advancements in technology and I mean you know that there could be a whole podcast just on that because they, it, there's just so much going on out there that that um, is really really exciting as far as um, beaver and the equine profession but but we have come to the to the end um Graham and and you know if if we could sort of leave the listeners with with a final message and I know it's difficult because I feel like we've touched on so many um, pertinent points but is there any anything that you want to sort of say as as a conclusion to 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 your life in equine practice and, and what made you tick? Well, I think you've you've just said it in in 
in, in your words. It's the excitement of new, um, of, of, of pushing the boundaries further. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm an avid reader of, of journals and listener to webcams and so on. And, will enjoy going to the Beaver Congress when it next is virtual, just to hear what marvellous new things are being done. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I second that, Graham. I think it's um, we're all desperate to kind of be reunited and, and share share things that are, that are going on and our passions. And, 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 and there's just so much is there and it'd be so nice to talk about those things face to face but but thank you so much um for for, for joining me today it's um, been a, a real pleasure and um, a, a privilege to have your time and and talk through um talk through your career and your failures and, and thank you to, to beaver and and to the listeners again for tuning in um and please uh, join me next time for my next guest so thank you graham and thank you to the listeners bye Bye. This episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more information on Beaver products and the benefits of your membership, please go to www.beaver.org.uk.